0: Welcome to episode 10 of the podcast, Own It. I'm your host, Jordan Boritzki, and today I'm pleased to be joined by Stephen Hall from the Together We Can Society. Together We Can, or TWC, is an addiction recovery and education society that is one of Canada's premier treatment centers for men battling alcohol and drug addiction. Their mission is to educate and support men and families who desire a new life in recovery. My guest, Stephen, is the community relations lead. However, Stephen's journey to this position required tremendous hard work, dedication, and commitment. At the age of 13, he became involved with drugs and alcohol. However, in July 2018, Stephen moved to Vancouver to attend a drug addiction treatment program at TWC. Through a 60-day program, Stephen was successful at overcoming his addiction and began volunteering and eventually working for TWC. Today, Stephen uses his story as a means to help others overcome drug and alcohol addiction. Stephen, before we dive into our discussion, I want to say congratulations for making it to this point in your life and overcoming so much in order to help both yourself and the loved ones around you. It's truly inspiring. So good on you and well done.
1: Wonderful. Thank you so much, Jordan. I appreciate that.
0: So just before we dive in, um, the, the approach that I really want to take with this interview is to walk through a timeline through your life. And I have several questions that I'd like to ask you along your journey to where you are now. And I'll start with more of a big picture question. So I'd like to first know your opinion on what you think the biggest misconception is toward individuals with problematic substance use.
1: Well, that's a a big question, Jordan, to be honest with you. But I think the biggest misconception is that um, people who are suffering or struggling with addiction or substance use or dependency, um, a lot of people just see them for their addiction. And at the end of the day, you know, everybody you see out there on the streets or even in their own homes. I mean, addiction does not discriminate. Um, they're all sons and daughters, and a lot of them are mothers and fathers, sisters, brothers. They're, they have families. Um, they have people that do love them and care about them, and they're not the sum of their addiction. Um, working in treatment and then obviously being in recovery myself, I've met some of the most intelligent, artistic, articulate people um that have just been given the opportunity by somebody else you know to get clean to start working on themselves and they're able to build really uh big lives for themselves you know they can achieve important great things and so I think again that misconception when we just assume somebody is the sum of their addiction we take away that opportunity for them to seek help and to grow.
0: Right. And obviously your story is a great example of, you know, how you're able to overcome a lot of adversity in your life and and do amazing things for people nowadays. So it's a it's a great story. And I kind of want to dive in more about talking about your story. Um, And I'd like to begin by having you explain when and how drugs and alcohol became first introduced in your life.
1: Mm -hmm. Um, Well, uh, growing up, um, alcohol was a big thing with my family. So a lot of my uh, family members are, I guess, dependent on substances or they like to drink, you know. Um, so it was uh, a big part of my, my childhood. And so um, around 11 years old was the first time I ever tried smoking marijuana. And uh, I started drinking, you know, I stole some vodka out of uh, one of my grandparents' liquor cabinets. And I got drunk and, um, <clears throat> and then we, we smoked weed. And, you know, what it was for me was immediately this release, right? Um, I felt okay. Finally, I felt like there was no pressure on me and things like that. My family life was a bit tumultuous, to say the least. Um, Growing up, you know, there was a divorce and, you know, my parents also struggled with their own um, mental health and substance misuse problems. Um, And so things weren't exactly stable for a majority of my childhood. So when I started to use at 11, when I first started, that's what that release or relief was that I was mentioning is once I got drunk, I could laugh. Things weren't as bad, you know, and, um, same with smoking marijuana. And I always had this agreement with myself because I watched, uh, my own family go through the issues, you know, the things you're plagued with by being an addiction. I always promised myself I would never become them. And, and I would never allow that to happen to myself, but addiction is a progressive illness. And, um, you know, I wouldn't say I was like, completely physically dependent upon upon substances at 11 years old, but certainly the psychological dependence started then. Um, so it was with friends. Um, and I have siblings. So you know, I, I uh, drank or used uh, smoked weed with the older siblings of mine and their friends. And then by the time I was uh, 13 years old, we had moved to a very small community in uh, rural Alberta. And I didn't really know anybody. Uh, my whole class, actually, my grade nine class, was a whole of 24 people. And most of these people actually grew up together since kindergarten. So I was kind of the outcast. Um, so I used drugs and alcohol as a means to make friends. And so I, you know, I got in with the, the quote unquote, bad, bad kids, um, the troublemakers. And that's what we did. You know, we, uh, we smoked weed and we drank. And then from there, it turned into ecstasy and cocaine and, and all that. And, you know, by the time I was 15 years old, I was using every day. And so uh, it progressed really rapidly from there, Um, had a little bit of clean time here and there, uh, but nothing significant until I was 28 years old, and I actually ended up in treatment.
0: Right. And as you mentioned, drugs and alcohol can start off as a starting point, um, used socially, um, just to kind of uh, use when you're with friends and as a social lubricant. As you were saying, so in your personal experience, at what point did you realize that the use of drugs was really becoming problematic?
1: Um, 18, actually. I was just talking about this the other day with um, somebody in recovery, and I said it was around 18 years old. Um, I moved to uh, Winnipeg, actually. Um, My mom ended up remarrying and having two children, and she got her life together, and so they opened a business in Winnipeg, and I I went out there to manage one of their offices. Um, But I moved there at 18 years old. I didn't know a soul anybody in Winnipeg um so my best idea my best decision was I just drank and so that's when it really turned into daily use of alcohol it was a constant hangover getting drunk again hangover getting drunk again and it was a a, every single night thing I remember you know I was just so excited for the staff to leave at four o'clock so I could go to the liquor store down the street and I could drink at work you know everybody was gone for the day and I would start drinking at work and, and you know, I would drink all night long and I wasn't eating or anything like that. Um, So alcohol is a big part of my story. Um, Drugs really became very big in my life around 23 is probably when drugs were taking the most hold on me. And then when I was 24, I was actually um, clean for just under a year and a half. Um, But I never I didn't do anything other than stop using substances. I didn't get counseling. I didn't really try and do anything to better my situation and so I um, ended up what is coined as a dry drunk and so you you're still the same person everything's the same you're just not using substances. Um, so I ended up relapsing when I was 25 and I used from 25 to 28 so my last relapse was three years long and I could tell you Jordan that was the scariest time of my life because it didn't matter what substance I used it was drugs alcohol all the time I would stay awake for eight days at a time you know binging and then sleep for four days and it was just by the time I actually got to treatment I can I can kind of laugh at this now I thought I had relapsed for maybe a year year and a half I didn't realize that I was actually out using for three years and that's like it was just a blur um yeah. So it's, uh, it's been quite a journey to be a hundred percent honest with
0: you. And speaking along that journey in 2018, you made a life changing decision to come to Vancouver and join a drug addiction treatment program. This is often the most difficult decision for a person to make and the hardest for a family member or a friend to really convince their loved one to do. So first, can you provide perspective as to why someone with an addiction would be hesitant to make this difficult decision? And second, how exactly did you come to this decision?
1: Well, the first part there is why would somebody be hesitant is, um, substances for me were my coping mechanism. It's the only way I knew how to deal with life. It's the only way I knew how to manage emotion or be numb to emotion. Rather, um, I didn't have coping skills. And so that has been kind of my security blanket. It was my security blanket for 28 years. And, I had obviously flirted with the idea of going to treatment or my family had mentioned it several times. And I would say, yeah, I'll go to treatment. And the next day it would be a different story. Cause I was terrified to not use drugs and alcohol. I didn't know who I was without it. I knew it was destroying my life. Um, I knew the repercussions of it. I knew the consequences of it. Right. Um, to a certain degree, um, I didn't allow those consequences to make, let me stop though, or to force myself to stop. Right. I didn't really have a choice anymore. It was I woke up in the morning, you know, um, and I drank. And that's what I did so that I could feel normal. Um, So the thought of going to treatment to leave your community, to leave your, you know, I was employed and things like that, to leave my job, to leave my family and come out to the coast, it was terrifying. It was absolutely terrifying to me because I didn't know what I was going to get into. And I knew I couldn't use anymore. Um, The drugs stopped working. I was just using to stay normal, right? Um, but I wasn't getting high anymore. So I knew that was over, but I just had no idea what, where I was going to go. And I was so hopeless. I was extremely hopeless when I ended up uh, in TWC. and I don't know if it, what divine intervention it was or whatever it was that actually, I snapped out of it one day and just called TWC and, and they got me in in less than a week. Um I'm thankful for that day. I don't know what caused it, but I'm extremely grateful that that happened for me, right? Uh, Because it gave me the courage to come here. And it wasn't an easy road, um, getting clean and being in treatment and things like that. But um, that is, I would say, probably one of the biggest deterrents for most people is just simple fear and the second part of your question could you refresh my
0: memory yeah just how exactly did you come to this decision and you kind of spoke a bit briefly
1: okay yeah I spoke about that a bit so that's what it was is um I'll talk about my family there is actually my mother I was living with my mom for my relapse in her house and she had my little brother and sister who were I believe 12 and 13 at the time and And she watched me go down this road for three years. And she's, you know, she helped me, I was allowed to live there and and all these things, right? I didn't pay her rent, I didn't do anything like that. But finally, probably about six months before I went to treatment, I could really tell I was burning my bridge with my mother. And um, I had promised her, I said, I'll go to treatment, I will go to treatment, because you know, she was threatening to kick me out of the house and all these things. And actually, when she threatened to kick me out of the house, I was weighing options. I said, well, there's lots of people I know, I could go live on their couch. And then Finally, I decided that I didn't wanna live on somebody's couch. Um, it still took me about four months to get into treatment after I promised her because it was terrifying. And so I would tell her that alcohol and drug counselor weren't, weren't calling me back or the organization wasn't calling me back, but really I just wasn't answering their calls. Um, but one of the biggest things I would say is my mom looked me square in the eyes one day, a couple of weeks before I went to treatment and in a very calm, voice which she hadn't been using for quite a while she was always frantic and I used that to my advantage but in a very calm voice she said I don't trust you anymore and I don't want you in my house anymore she said I love you but I'm not going to watch you kill yourself and just the calmness in her voice and the um, authority she said that with really woke me up and I thought wow like right now thinking about it and playing that in my mind, I'm getting shivers or goosebumps because um, that's that was a pivotal moment in my life. And uh, I'm very thankful she did that for me because I probably would have continued to manipulate and lie to her if, you know, if eventually she didn't build that boundary with me. Um, so that's how I ended up coming here. And, uh, you know, my last bender, what I was speaking about earlier is. I was on a week long bender and, um, I couldn't stay clean for five minutes. Like I had to be using a substance and I was house sitting for somebody. Actually, somebody trusted me enough to leave me in their house. And I looked around and in their bedroom, there, you know, I had moved their furniture and I drank all the liquor in their house and there was bottles everywhere. And I was driving around drunk and things like this. And I just sat up on the couch as I was thinking about all this. And it, I just woke up out of it and said, like, I, I, I need to change something. Something has to change here.
0: And I want to ask you where, how come, or sorry, how did you come to the decision to come to Vancouver and join together? We can, did you weigh out different options and look at different programs or how did that all come to be?
1: Well, um, I had a drug and alcohol counselor. I'm from the West Kootenays, uh, which is about seven hours out of Vancouver, um, to the, uh, east and then down by the United States border there. It's a very small community that I'm from there. Um, So I did have an alcohol and drug counsellor that I was seeing uh, provided through Interior Health, the health authority there. Um, So she actually was counselling me and had given me a list of different treatment centres that were available. Some um, in the West Kootenays, not very many options are there. And then also on the, the coast here. And so I had done some research and looked at their websites. I didn't really put too much effort into it to be honest with you um i knew i didn't want to stay in the west kootenays though t- for treatment um because everybody goes to the same treatment center there and so, it's, so you just end up in treatment with the people you party with so i did have resolved that if i was going to go it would be on the west coast because uh, i needed a new experience and a new place and a fresh start and i remember i was looking at twc's website and um just some of the the um the content they had on there made sense to me. And there was nice pictures of rooms and it didn't look like a hospital. I thought treatment was, they were gonna lock me up in a hospital and it was gonna be very clinical and cold. And uh, TWC's website didn't, didn't uh, show that. And so um, that's who I ended up just reaching out to all of a sudden, um, just I Googled their phone number and just called together we can and, and got on the phone with the intake. Um, so that's kind of how I chose TWC to be honest with you. <laughs>
0: And I want to jump back to talking about the relationship with your mom and your family, and when we speak about the role that family plays in supporting a loved one with an addiction, it's hard to say whether there is only one approach that works for each individual. So my question is, what have you learned from the approach your family took in supporting you during these difficult times in your life, and how has that shaped the advice you now give other families going through similar situations? 100%.
1: 100%. That's a really good question. Um, together, we can actually offer as a family group that I help facilitate. And so we touch on this subject quite a lot. So in my own experience, my family has always been extremely supportive of me. They've been very empathetic and compassionate. And I mean, some days I look back at the my past and what I've done to them and put them through and I'm like, oh, I would have given up on me years ago. And, you know, I'm, again, super grateful that they never gave up on me. Um, but I think for the most part, my family, once once it got to be enough for them, they all kind of united and enough was enough. You know, it was just everybody all had the same uh, words for me is you need to get help, right? There was no manipulating anymore. They actually came together. And as, a, as an addict, um, as, a we, uh, as a means for us to kind of stay where we're at, we try and divide and conquer. And so I have six or seven, yeah, six siblings, sorry and then my mother. And um, I tried my hardest to make sure they weren't talking to each other, or I would leak certain information to one sister and, and you know, let that go through the, the telephone, if you will. So it's all different on the other end, and I could argue it. Um, so once they actually took and started talking to each other and took a unified approach to, okay, Stephen needs help, and we are not the ones that can help him, is when it really changed for me. And so that's the same thing um, I use my experience for when I'm working with family members of those who have loved ones who are in active addiction or new to treatment or new to recovery is, you know, it's important um, and it's not always realistic, but it's important for, um, you know, the family to have a unified message and to lay down, this is what we're willing to do as a family and this is what we're not willing to do. And then sticking to those boundaries. Um, again, when I had mentioned my mom looked at me and said, I don't trust you and, and I don't want you here anymore that was from basically my whole family when my mom said that you know I heard all my sisters say that to me and and my brother and and um that's what I took from it because I I knew I was trying to talk to everybody and they just weren't taking they weren't listening to my lies anymore or my justifications so it's extremely important for a family to come together build those boundaries and um still support somebody you know love love your your addict, (laughs) you know, love them until the cows come home, right? It's so important that we feel love, but also the enabling piece is is where it gets dangerous, right? And, you know, my mom has done her own work surrounding my addiction and and her um how it's impacted her. And we talk about enabling and we talk about codependency and these types of things that have been a big part of our relationship for many years. And um when i teach enabling in the family group or help facilitate it you know i say no one's to blame when it comes to enabling don't feel guilty you haven't done something wrong it's just our response right if you're a mother with your son and your son's an addiction of course you're going to try and help him as best you can right but the important piece is when you recognize that enabling has become a part of your relationship or codependency uh, do some work on codependency for sure but if you recognize those things are parts of your relationship then the only responsibility you have as a family member is to start changing yourself and and doing that for yourself honoring your own journey and healing from the impact of your loved one's addiction because enabling doesn't just hurt the addict it hurts the enabler too it puts the enabler in this constant state of guilt and shame and an addict is in that same constant state so that's that's where we share the process as addicts and family members of addicts is the guilt and the shame and the confusion and the darkness and the hopelessness right so everybody has to start their own healing journey. It's not just about the addict coming, you know, to treatment or, or to the a uh, 12-step fellowship or whatever they so choose. Um, it takes everybody needs to heal, right? We heal better as a community and, uh, and that's very important. The other piece too is um, some of the things we've done as addicts in our past are completely insane. You know, it's uh, some of the actions we've taken, the lies we've told, the way we've behaved, Um, And I'm not saying we should get a free pass on that, but trying to let go of the past, working with somebody through it in a calm way and a compassionate way. And um, I, you know, as a recovering addict, I have to take personal responsibility over what I've done so that I don't continue to make those mistakes. But honestly, my family has been, again, so supportive when I did my amends with them and talk with them about my past and the things they've done to help me and things um, of that nature you know, they've said their part, they've told me where I've upset them and where I've hurt them. Um, but they've done it in a calm way. And they've done it in a way that we can heal together so I can so that they can be heard. And I don't have to justify it or explain it to them, right? I know that I've done something wrong, but I let them be heard. And so that way, they can take that and, and again, start start their own journey with it. It's uh, a lot of the time, it's just communication.
0: And I want to go back to your point talking about uh, the importance of unifying the family and and having everyone really on the same page. And obviously, it's it's certainly easier said than done. And I guess what kind of strategies or advice do you give to families that are having a difficult time really getting on the same page?
1: Right. Um, That's again, this is where I said it's not always realistic, right? So. Trying to get everybody sat down. Um, It's really hard to communicate over like text or, you know, group messages and things like that. But even if you can set up a Zoom call, if you have family from different parts of the country or a phone call or something like that, get everybody on the same call. Talk about the issue, you know. Um, So-and-so, you know, is drinking a lot. We know this about him. He's drinking a lot or using a lot and this is what's happening. So let's say if, if the addict is living with mom and dad still and the siblings are on the call, mom and dad need to be open and apparent about that because that is part of enabling is lying or covering up for the addict, right? So coming together, being open and apparent and saying this is what's actually going on and as a family, we need to determine what we're willing to do for our son or our daughter, whoever it is in your life, um, mom or dad. We are willing to help support them but we're no longer willing to enable them to continue their addiction right and that looks so different for every family so sometimes you have to determine are they still allowed to live in the family home um are you gonna buy them groceries this month things like that you know um but again in a general way the best thing is for the family to all come together try and um be rational and it, right? It's, you know, it's obviously high emotion, very high emotion. There's going to be people that are triggered and frustrated, giving everybody the chance to express their emotion um, without, you know, fighting um, with each other. Um, but then having that conversation after the emotion's been kind of, you know, everybody's allowed to say their piece, um, but don't hold each other hostage either or hold each other, blaming each other anything like that or blame yourself, right? But coming together and saying, this is what we're willing to do to support whoever it is Um, but we're no longer willing to do these types of things. So we ask that everybody in the family is on the same page.
0: Right. And you have mentioned in other interviews before the idea of hitting rock bottom in order to realize the need to seek help. Although, like you said before, this may not be the case for everyone. For many family members, however, it can be very difficult to watch a loved one hit rock bottom without taking action to support them. So how does a family find a balance between supporting their loved one while also allowing them the opportunity to recognize that they have hit rock bottom or they need to hit rock bottom in order to realize the importance of seeking help.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, I'll speak to my experience here. So everybody's rock bottom is really different. So in some circles, there's a high bottom, a, a mid bottom, and a low bottom. So if you look at my story, I was probably the middle bottom, right? I was My job was being threatened. My um, home, you know, my uh, housing was being threatened. Uh, but a majority of what my bottom was, was mental health. Is I didn't want to live anymore. know and that that scared me too is i was hoping that this next line is going to be the one that gets me because i didn't know how to do it myself and so that's what my bottom was it was my family um uh, starting to push me away um and rightly so it was the fact that i didn't want to live anymore but at the same time i had a job and you know a, a place to live i was living at my mom's but you know i was i was making it Um, For some people, a high bottom can be DUIs or the threat of, you know, again, the family falling apart, you know, or a divorce or something along those lines. Um, And then you have low bottom. And those are the types of people that we see who are on the streets, you know, um, living in the shelters and things like that. Um, Unfortunately, to answer your question, though, is you can't determine somebody's bottom, A lot of the time I've seen that with family members is they think this is, this has got to be the bottom for my loved one. You know, they're on the street, they're using all the time, it's cold out, this has got to be the bottom, and then you're shocked that it can go further. And so the best thing to do there, honestly, um, I think in, in my own experience, right, is you can love them and support them and say like we love you and support you and if you want to get help and go to treatment or you want to whatever you want to do that's going to be a positive in your life we will we'll come and pick you up and we'll drive you there you know we'll uh we'll help set up appointments for you and things of that nature maybe try and find housing through the government or something for them right um but again it's recognizing that you need to start your healing too and so that's where the uh disconnect needs to start happening or yeah is um where somebody's just their life is out of control. And obviously, you want to help them, you don't want to see them be homeless, you don't want to see them in these dangerous situations and things like that. But um, unfortunately, love isn't the cure for addiction. Um, It's a very important ingredient um, to finding an end to it. Um, But it isn't the cure. So eventually and it's very tough to do I don't say this thinking you know you can just walk out there and and do this but when we teach the family group is eventually you know it is going to most likely come to a time where you're going to have to disconnect from your family member as a means to protect yourself but also hopefully for them to realize like I said with my mother was enough was enough you know if I wanted my mom in my life I wasn't going to she wasn't going to watch me die anymore, right? She wasn't going to let me stay in her house and, uh, and kill myself, right? Um, so again, it's a, it's a tough one. It's a very, very tough one. And it's on an individual basis. The one thing I would always suggest too is like family counseling or getting a, you know, a third party involved. You know, there's interventionists out there. There's sober coaches. There's a whole bunch of resources out there. Al-Anon and Nar-Anon and all of these great fellowships are available too. Um, and those are like peer-led, Support groups. So you can talk to other parents or other wives and, or other husbands and um, see how they handled it, right? But I think a majority of them are going to tell you that it does take some, a bit of disconnect um, and starting to protect your own safety and your emotional well being.
0: And on the topic of reaching out, I, I do want to ask you Did you ever find yourself being um, stubborn, I guess, when it came to uh, choosing where you wanted to reach out to help or if you wanted to reach out for help? And if so, why, I guess, looking back in hindsight, why would you say at that time you were stubborn, perhaps?
1: Um, I wouldn't be a good addict if I wasn't stubborn. Um, so most addicts, we, uh, we think we know best. We have huge egos because it's our coping mechanism and we know everything and, and are everything, right? Um, there's a lot of uh, disillusion there. So one of the things I've been taught in my recovery is, first off, I don't know everything um, and that's okay. I don't need to know everything. I'm not responsible to do that. But my stubbornness, and I think for the um, the residents here at TWC that I've worked with, we all kind of follow the same path. Our stubbornness is a need to control because we feel out of control. Um, so we try to grab on to anything around us that we can control and manipulate so it's ours, so that we feel some sort of stability, I suppose. It's a very unhealthy coping mechanism, but it is a coping mechanism, right, that needs to be worked on. And so my own stubbornness, again, it came from a fear based place, you know, Um, I felt very out of control. I didn't know what was going on. I like I had mentioned earlier, I knew I was an addict. I knew I needed help. I was terrified to get that help. And again, I didn't know who I was without drugs or alcohol. One of the questions they asked me um, in my intake at Together Weekend is, what are your hobbies? And I laughed and I said, well, my hobbies are drugs and alcohol. I, I, I've never done anything else. And you hear people say that too in, in recovery as you know, I, I came back in here to get my life back and I, I never had a life because um, I started using and I think a majority of us do. We start using young. That was my life. I didn't know what life was. You know, I'm 31 today and I'm still learning. I'm almost three years clean. Um but I'm, I have so much more to learn and I really don't know what, you know, next year is going to look like for me. You know, is it school again? Is it, you know, where, where am I going to be in my career and things like that? And that was terrifying, new in recovery. Because um, again, I don't know what's coming at me and I want to control everything because it's my only, that's the only thing I know how to do is to try and control. So once I learned how to let that go and kind of just go with the flow. Um, life has been a lot easier for me. I'm not as stubborn now because I also realize that it's a learning process, no matter if you're in recovery or not, uh, life is a learning process. It's the journey. We don't know what's going to happen to us. And we just need to kind of let go, you know, and, uh, accept what we can and just, and just take the journey, right. Try and put your best foot forward, be the best person you can be. And, and things will work out the way they're supposed to. I'm, I'm a big believer in
0: that. I want to ask from your experience, what role or sorry, what different role did a parent versus sibling play in supporting you during the most difficult times in your life?
1: For sure. Um, the different role. So, um, like I mentioned, I have a lot of siblings. Um, so my sisters, uh, they were always very supportive of me. They were always compassionate, very empathetic. Um, not that my mother wasn't, um, But I would say that with my sisters, they didn't question me as much, to be honest with you. They knew there was a problem, but I I think they were a little bit more scared of saying something to me about it, right? Um, My mom, on the other hand, and her and I are very similar. We talk a lot and we say what we're feeling. And so my mom would say what she was feeling, but I knew also how to manipulate her and to use certain things, um, I don't wanna call them skills, um, but to use certain tactics um, so that I could get what I, w- I needed from my mother, which I, what I thought I needed. Um, it was actually all just wants at the end of the day, but um, I wouldn't say any of them were more easy to manipulate than the rest of them. But I think in my experience here at TWC as well, and working within the community um, is that parents are usually a lot more afraid of their child passing away. Um, siblings, obviously that's a big fear, but they, they're more into getting solution focused I've noticed as well as like okay you've made this decision let's move forward with it I know that's for my sisters as they're proud of me today I know they're very proud of me today and they want to see me keep going and so does my mom but I've also you know kind of given my mom like a form of PTSD at the end of the day um she she has been drugged through the mud like I didn't even recognize how many nights she stayed awake worrying about me it was I was not capable of realizing that when I was in addiction. And, you know, uh, when I first got to treatment, I think it was about two weeks in, my mom, I was talking to her on the phone and she said, Stephen, I have slept so good since you've been gone. And I took it right to heart. I said, well, who are you? You don't miss your baby boy. And what it came down to, is, she said, well, no, Stephen, I can sleep at night. I know you're safe, you know, and that was my real first Uh, Awakening, if you will, or my eyes opening to the fact that I had really caused harm to my mother. So she's scared. Um, You know, another thing is she came down for uh, my one year, uh, once I had the year clean, she came and visited me and she spoke. And, uh, you know, and I love her for this. I laugh about it as she said, you know, Stephen, there was a piece of me in the back of my mind that thought you were lying this whole time and that you just had a really good story, you know. And she said, now that I've come down here and I've Seen where you work and I've seen your friends and I see what life you're living. She said, I can, I, I, I'm starting to trust more, you know, and this is a process. Right. But I would say again, I mean, every family's different. Some siblings enable each other to no end. A lot of the times we see siblings that are in addiction together as well. Um, A lot of the times we see the whole family that's in addiction together or nobody's an addict except for the one person that we're working with. Right. So very, very different family by family.
0: My next question for you. I know uh, a few moments ago you talked about what a dry drunk is. Can you just elaborate on this a little bit more? And second, can you speak to the importance of not just completing an addiction treatment program, but also taking it a step further and receiving trauma support and other forms of guidance, counseling to help target low self-esteem and other mental health consequences after, um, I guess, what you refer to as being dry drunk?
1: Yeah, for sure. So a dry drunk is a term commonly used in the 12 step fellowship. And what that means is we're not doing anything we've stopped using or drinking using substances. Um, So we are dry, by definition. Um, But we haven't changed any of our thought patterns. We haven't received any emotional support. We haven't really changed anything other than the fact that we have stopped using substances. And at the end of the day, substances are again just a means to cope. And so if we still don't know how to cope with anger or sadness or betrayal or any of these emotions or how to deal with the traumas of our past, if we're not getting help and we're just trying to do it on our own, you're going to stay in that mindset uh, that you were when you were using right? Um, Again, the only thing that's different in that is you're just not using, but you're still the same person. Ultimately, you haven't done any work towards yourself. So I'm part of a 12-step fellowship. Um, That's how I've gotten clean and stayed clean. And that doesn't work for everybody, right? There's a ton of different types of supports out there, though. Um, But part of my program through the 12-step fellowship is working on those types of things, is looking at the accountability I need to take for my past actions, is looking at how do I respond instead of react, you know? Um, how do I look at the, uh, some of my flaws and how do I turn, turn those into assets, right? So that's very important. And then when you're actually in an addiction treatment program, like Together We Can, again, these are two separate um, organizations. At together we can you know you're going to have your one on one counseling you're going to have the group therapies that we do you're going to go through process groups or experiential therapy there's outings there's a whole bunch of different options and therapies there. Um, So that gives you the opportunity to begin the work on yourself and the hope is is that you start the work here, Um, you are in a safe environment away from drugs and alcohol. Um, You start the work, you begin working with a counsellor one-on-one, and then when you're done in treatment, the hope is that you continue to do those types of things, right? And also have a supportive recovery community behind you. So again, if that's 12-step or, you know, there's smart recovery, refuge recovery, there's a ton of different recovery options out there. Um, Again, very important. When it comes to trauma support and uh, just mental health in general, I think everybody can use help with that, right? Right. One of the, the barriers, obviously, to access these supports is, is financial. And so um, you can go through the government to receive these types of counseling trauma support and things like that. The waitlists are huge, though, in most cases. Um, so if you're working with uh, like a union or your employer pays things like that through your employee assistance program, it's easier um but again it's extremely important that people um that are in recovery take the time to realize you know the 12-step model is just a piece of the pie then you have your counseling you have your support group you have your physical health mental health there's all these different things that you need to balance in order to maintain recovery um and again receiving that trauma support um and counseling is a huge piece to that pie Ultimately, at the end of the day, it's going to give you the opportunity to really dig deep and find out what what is it that happened for you, you know, that uh, that's really triggering this that's causing you to act in these ways um, so that you can start doing the healing around that.
0: I want to transition now to talking about the period in life when you began receiving treatment through the 12 step TWC program. And so going back to an earlier question in this interview, as someone who initially reached out to seek help yourself. What advice would you offer someone who is hesitant to reach out and seek support for their addiction? hundred percent. Um, not every
1: organization is 12 steps. So, um, even at TWC, we have, um, some programs that are not 12 step based. Um, I like the 12 steps, but for anybody that's looking for support, um, just know that there's a ton of resources out there. There are a lot of treatment centers. There's, um, your mental health and substance use offices. The one piece of advice I would, I would give individuals is, just reach out, just realize you're worth it. You know, I had mentioned the hopelessness, um, of my addiction. And I thought, you know, I really believed that I was destined to die under a bridge, you know, as an alcoholic and, um, I realize that's not the truth today, right? But that's what that's one thing I'd really encourage those out there who may be struggling with addiction right now or contemplating going to treatment or getting into recovery is go out there there's nothing to lose, you know, give it a year if you don't like it in the fellowship or you don't you don't have to go to treatment for a year, but if you don't like it um you know, at least you you tried, but I think going in there with an open mind and some willingness and some honesty is saying like, okay, my life is, my life is pretty bad. You know, you don't end up in treatment because things are great. Um, so just giving yourself that opportunity, you have to honestly give yourself permission to get better.
0: And I'm curious, was there one piece of advice during the 60 day treatment program that you would want others to know?
1: Yeah. Um, the thing that always sticks with me is I was about 20 days into my treatment program And our group facilitator was leading group and it was all about change and he said if you have the opportunity to change everything, then you need to change everything so. My big plan was that I was going to come down to the coast do 60 days of treatment and go home, Um, my job was still secure I could go there. My mom was going to was willing to let me stay in the house because I went to treatment, but yes, we did this group and. It was just all, he said, change, change everything you possibly can if you want to stay clean, you know, and it was around, it was around the 15-20 day mark when I actually really realized that um, I was worth it, I, I could do this. Um, so that day after group, I actually talked to the uh, program coordinator and said, can I go into second stage housing, which we offer here at Together We Can, um, as a, like a supportive living environment after you're done first stage. And they said, yeah, that's no problem at all. And so I phoned my employer and I quit my job and I phoned my mom and said, I'm not coming home. And both of them were very upset with me actually in the beginning. And it took me to say, because they, you know, I can't blame them. Uh, They loved me. That's great. You know, my old employer really wanted me back because I was a good employee and, and he trusted me and wanted me around and my mom loves me. And so I did have to explain to them though. And I said, like, I can come home in 60 days, but the potential of me relapsing is high. And we're going to go through this all again. So I think I need to take at least a year down here on the coast and stay in a supportive environment in order for me to build a good foundation. And it's nearly three years later and I'm still here. Um, so that, would, uh, that was the life, the, the big change for me when I was at TWC.
0: And you speak a lot about the important role that your mom and your family played. And obviously, as you've been saying throughout the interview, they, they, they're showing their love to you through all the decisions and all the comments that they tell you throughout your life. And I'm wondering if you can speak about the important role of having a social support network, specifically at TWC, and how this has helped you on your path to recovery.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, I wouldn't be where I was today if it wasn't for the friends I had in recovery. Um, I've had many friends growing up and partying and things like that, but it was uh, a lot of those relationships were very surface level. I live today, and my roommates are all in recovery. My really close friends are all in recovery. Um, the reason why it's important is when I'm feeling down and maybe I feel like using, is I can go and talk to them about that, and they're not going to have the same reaction that my family is because. My family was drugged through the mud, of course. Like I said, there's almost like a form of PTSD. They hear that and they go right back to the past. So I can go to my friends in recovery and say like, wow, today is really hard. And you know what? The thought of getting drunk actually crossed my mind. And they'll sit down and they'll talk to me about that. And we'll go through why that's obviously a bad idea. And and then we'll move to solution. Maybe we'll go to a meeting together or we'll whatever, hang out. also like to have somebody understand these people that are in my life today they understand what addiction is because they've been there they understand that hopelessness they understand the desperation and the guilt and the shame you know I don't have to explain that to them over and over and over again it's just it's understood in between two addicts helping another and um, it has been probably the biggest piece of my recovery was building a support group and these are friends that, I just, I didn't actually, I realized I didn't know what friendship was until I got into recovery and the people I have in my life today, they know everything about me. I don't feel judged by them. I can be a hundred percent honest and authentic. It's, uh, it's amazing to be honest with you. It's absolutely, absolutely amazing.
0: Yeah. Everyone I spoke to, you know, speaks to the importance of having a social support network. And in many cases, it's the difference between life and death. So, mm-hmm. um, but with my next question I'd like to ask all my guests their thoughts on the impact of the COVID pandemic and how and how this is having on individuals mental health and their drug use particularly in Vancouver. So I'd like to read you off a few stats from BC's provincial drug toxicity death counts in 2021. So it says the number of illicit drug toxicity deaths in February 2021 equates to about 5.5 deaths per day and 69% of those dying were aged 30 to 59 while males accounted for 81% of deaths in 2021. Can you please share your thoughts on the effect that the pandemic is having on rates of death due to drug use in the province of BC and Canada as a whole?
1: Mm -hmm. Well, there's a number of um, effects that the pandemic is having on it. The first is supply. Um, So obviously with the borders being closed, the supply is low and the demand is still just as high, if not higher. And so what we're seeing is a lot of people cutting um, the drugs with other drugs um, and not they're not mixing it properly and it's getting cross contaminated if you want to use that term. And so uh, the other piece is when everybody was given the SERB benefit, for instance, the, uh, the economic benefit there. Um, all of a sudden we had addicts who were going from buying a gram to huge amounts of drugs because they were they had access to this money, which I think, you know, the CERB was a great thing for Canada but um, we've seen a huge spike in overdose deaths because there was so much, and again, the supply was so low. And so that really changed the way things are, are done, especially you know, in, in the drug community here in Vancouver is you, you know, you, you're a dealer, your job is to supply, right? Um, the other piece in here too, that's very important, I think that we should look at is out of these uh, deaths is that a majority of these deaths actually were in private homes. Um, on the Lower Mainland. I think if I'm not mistaken I would have to look at the coroner's report again but it was 59% or 52% of the deaths um, in 2020 that is actually occurred in private residences which means that these are people who are not homeless that are not living on the downtown east side these are professionals Um, these are people who have that high bottom or maybe they haven't reached a bottom at all yet um, but they're dying. Uh, A lot of people as well um, reflected in here you said the age is 30 to 59 the second group is uh is younger um unfortunately and these are kids that have never that are just experimenting with drugs um and the drugs that are out there are way different than anybody else has ever experimented with the cross contamination as well in between drugs you know we've had people come in uh, to twc that have overdosed on fentanyl when they were using different drugs because it's cut in there or it was on a scale Um, and the scale wasn't cleaned off properly. So we are seeing a lot of people who don't actually do uh, opiates, who don't use opiates are actually dying as well. Um, The other piece too, I would think is the, um, if we go into the um, population that is on the street is when the pandemic hit, Um, basically two thirds of the shelter beds were closed down in Vancouver for social distancing or physical distancing, we're calling it now, which meant that two thirds of their participants or the residents of those shelters were on the street. And so there was nowhere for them to go. A lot of the services were actually closed down as well. Um, You know, downtown, uh, the clinics and things like that were harder to access, the not for profits were harder to access, we didn't have people out on the streets that were trying to help. Um, so we've seen a huge spike in, in uh, these deaths. The other piece too is coming from a recovery standpoint is that all of a sudden everybody's at home. And so they're not working. Uh, they're used to working, let's use the film industry for instance, they're used to working 14 hour days and all of a sudden they're at home with nothing to do and they're not allowed to leave their house. So loneliness obviously is a huge impact. The isolation that the pandemic has caused um, has made a huge impact on our alumni. We had a lot of people relapse. Um, we have a lot of people now that are seeking treatment for their first time because, um, they've actually turned to drugs and alcohol more so to get through the isolation.
0: Right. And I want to speak to the population, specifically, uh, the individuals who are living alone in those apartments and, and who are using drugs and, and dying as a result of that. Mm-hmm. In terms of mental health, and you kind of briefly spoke about this, but how much of an impact do you think the COVID pandemic is having on those individuals who are living alone and who are isolated and and lonely?
1: A very major impact. I know with my own mental health, like I consider myself very lucky that I live in a house with five other recovering addicts um, because I I did, I was off of work. Um, I was working from home and even with having those individuals around me, I felt useless is what it came down to and it really played a major role in my depression is I didn't feel like I had a purpose and I couldn't go anywhere I felt so stuck and so I think a lot of those people who are living on their own is the same thing is they feel stuck they feel hopeless and you know the pandemic's a scary thing too I mean we run the risk of getting very ill and dying and that's spreading through our communities it's a lot of unknown and so for somebody who's already struggling with mental health issues um, it just—it really has a major negative impact upon that. Um, as well, we can't access the same supports. Again, you know, it's hard to get into counseling now. I think a lot of counselors are using Zoom or phone now. But in the very beginning of the pandemic, none of us were prepared for this. None of us were prepared for it. Right? We had even at TWC, we had to really. Uh, move quickly so that our counselors can continue seeing our our clients without coming into the building we have to buy laptops we have to buy all of this technology and zoom accounts and unfortunately some organizations um, out there that are community you know charities like together we can don't have that kind of capital they don't have the ability to just buy laptops to help people so a lot of those people who are struggling with mental health issues all of a sudden lost their support Um, And now I think that's picking up again, but that, that had a major impact. And, you know, I think for some people, it's a real setback, you know, are you going to continue to access that support as well now that you haven't had it for so long?
0: Yeah. That's a very strong point. So in the last part of this interview, I want to discuss about your life now in recovery. So in hindsight, is there any any advice you'd give your younger self during some of the most difficult days in your life?
1: Oh, nothing lasts forever. (sighs) that would be the biggest piece of advice is, you know, the only way through is through and I'll make it. Um, I'm, I can survive it. You know, I can make it through the the pain and uh, the emotion things like that. Like, you know, looking at my history as well, I couldn't experience joy without using drugs or anything over it. It was a time to celebrate. Right. So um, that would be my biggest piece of advice for myself is that, you know, life is going to get better. There is the way through it. And also to believe in myself, you know, um, I can't tell you when I was, you know, since being in recovery, I'm actually like content. I'm happy sometimes. Right. But you can't just be happy hundred percent of the time. That's not realistic, but I'm pretty content. Um, prior to that, I couldn't even tell you the last time I was happy or content. Um, so yeah, just telling myself like it, it can get better, reach out, seek help. Um, you don't have to do it alone. It's not, you you know, you don't, you're not responsible for the whole world. People can help you.
0: Right. And your answer kind of leads into my next question, but what would you say has been the most rewarding part of your life since entering recovery?
1: Oh, the most rewarding. There's so many, I would say at my one year clean date, actually, my little brother came down, uh, for my cake. And, um, this is the best memory I have is he is now 16 years old. And so this was two years ago. So he was 14. He's an absolute genius. Um, I proclaim him to be an absolute genius, but very smart in math and science. And so he was thinking about UBC and I was actually able to take my brother down to UBC. This was prior to the pandemic and go and tour around the math and science and engineer buildings and the library and talk to him about his future and like just see the excitement on his face. And it just clicked in in that moment is that's what I was risking. That's what I risked every single time I used. And that terrifies me. Um, but that's been my Best memory is that I was able to actually be there to do that with my little brother and to to show him to be a positive role model. You know, I've always been very very close to him, and um, we have a we talk a lot. We have a very close relationship. Um, so that was honestly the highlight of of what has been almost three years. Um, but overall, I would just say uh, people trust me again. I have integrity. You know, I have a great job. I get to work with other recovering addicts. Um, I get to work with a community relations team as well. We get to build partnerships with other organizations and spread the message and advocate for hope and change. Um, I have great friends. I have a stable living situation. My bills are paid all the time. I, I can go home at the end of the day and relax. It's really nice. And I can sleep in when I want to or get up as early as I want to. I have all this freedom now. You know, When I realized I no longer had a choice is when it really a lot of different choices opened up for me, right? I didn't have a choice of whether or not I could use, I can't use, but recognizing that I can't use drugs and alcohol has given me opportunities like you wouldn't imagine. Um, even this podcast has actually been great, you know, and, and yeah, I really, I uh, appreciate that, that you've given us this opportunity.
0: Well, thank you. Um, so with this next question, it's, it's kind of more of a personal question for me. And um, obviously this podcast is dedicated to my uncle And so with that, with that in mind, my last question would be what comforting message would you leave to family members who have battled their whole life, but have lost loved ones due to their mental health and or drug addiction?
1: Uh, You're not alone. That's a big one. You're not alone. There's a ton of uh, supports out there to help you. Um, It's difficult. I've lost somebody close to me as well due to mental health and substance misuse. And um, I felt very alone in it. Uh, I thought that no one would understand my grieving process or things like that. And there's um, so many support groups out there, you know, at Together We Can Again, we offer a free grief and loss support group for those who've lost individuals um, or bereaving individuals um, who've lost them through mental health or substance use. Um, There's organizations like Families Anonymous, uh, Al-Anon, Nar-Anon, that are peer-led groups that are family members of addicts, you don't have to do it alone. You know, it's, uh, it's hard, it's very hard to reach out and to get vulnerable for sure. But I can, I don't like to guarantee a lot of things in life. But I guarantee you, if you reach out and you talk to some of the other people who have experienced the same thing you have, things will get better, right? You'll always grieve that person, you'll always grieve them and grieving doesn't stop, you just learn how to live life with it. And, uh, and that that is possible.
0: I appreciate that advice. And uh, with that, I want to thank you so much for opening up, being so honest, being so vulnerable throughout this discussion. And, and really, thank you for joining me. This, uh, I certainly learned a lot. And, and I hope uh, that this podcast did well for a lot of other people as well. So um, thank you again. And I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day. Thanks for having me on, Jordan. I really appreciate it. Thank you for tuning in to episode 10 of the podcast, Own It, featuring Stephen Hall. Follow ownit underscore podcast on Instagram and stay tuned for more episodes.